It's January 23rd, 2014, in San Fernando, Mexico. The sun is setting. It lies low on the horizon, splashing the sky and cobblestone streets with soft hues of pink. The usual hustle and bustle of the city has ebbed, though drunken laughter and soulful music drifts out of the half-open doors of the taverns that line the street. Amidst the fading light, 20-year-old Karen Rodriguez waits behind the wheel of her car at an intersection. Two pickup trucks make their way slowly up the main road. The tinted windows obscure the identities of those inside. Suddenly, they burst forward, veering off the road and positioning themselves on either side of Karen's car, effectively caging her in. A handful of men get out. They're clad in camouflage fatigues, their eyes masked by the mirrored sunglasses they're wearing. One man stands out. He's shorter and slimmer than the others. There's a menacing aura around him. He steps forward and knocks on Karen's window. When she refuses to open the door, the man signals to one of his companions. He approaches the car with his machine gun pointing directly at her, the cold steel barrel coming to rest on the thin sheets of glass. And as you can imagine, they don't have to ask again. Karen reaches for the lock. She pushes the door open and delivers herself into the arms of the kidnappers. Immediately, she's shoved into the back seat of her own car. Two men climb in back with her while someone slips into the driver's seat. The tires squeal as the vehicle vaults away from the junction in a cloud of dark smoke. A couple hours pass. Karen's mother, Miriam, waits for her daughter to return home. Then suddenly, her phone rings. Miriam snatches it up without looking at the screen and holds it to her ear, expecting to hear the comforting sound of her daughter's voice. Instead, she's greeted by a deep voice that she doesn't recognize. The unknown male claims that he's from a cartel called Los Zetas. Now, the man reassures Miriam that Karen is with him and that she's unharmed. In fact, she's being treated well and will continue to be so as long as Miriam complies with his demands. He lays out his offer. It's simple. If Miriam pays him what he wants, Karen will be returned to her family safe and sound. If she chooses not to pay, well... He doesn't need to spell out what'll happen to her beloved daughter in that scenario. The kidnapping of Karen Rodriguez is unremarkable. People go missing in Mexico every day, abducted by members of the country's shadowy underworld. They ransom loved ones back to their families, and then they reinvest the money to fund their drug smuggling operations. What is remarkable is the role Miriam Rodriguez plays. She might not have a detective badge or a private eye license, but when the police refuse to help in the kidnapping case, she takes the law into her own hands. Armed with a pistol, an array of disguises, and an unquenchable thirst for justice, Miriam will come up against some of the most ruthless men in the country. Just how far will she be willing to go to find her daughter?
My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in San Fernando, Mexico, following Miriam Rodriguez. When the police refuse to investigate the disappearance of her daughter, Miriam is forced into action. But with a lack of clues or support from law enforcement, what can one woman really do against the might of one of the most fearsome cartels in Mexico? From Noiser, this is Mother Justice, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Faced with the unthinkable, Miriam decides to pay the ransom. Except, she doesn't have the amount of cash that the abductors have demanded. So, she goes to the bank. You see, ransom demands are so frequent in Mexico that some banks have found a way to profit. Almost unbelievably, they offer ransom loans in the event of the kidnap of a loved one. Miriam's been instructed to deliver the ransom money to an abandoned health clinic outside of the city limits. When the money's been delivered, she should return to San Fernando and wait outside one of the town's cemeteries where the handover of her daughter will take place. With the money secured, Miriam and her ex-husband set off on their mission. When he heard about what happened, he insisted on coming to the drop-off. And so, they made an uneasy truce for the good of their daughter. Now, after what feels like an eternity, their destination looms into view. When they reach the disused health center, Miriam pulls over and deposits the cash-laden package in the weeds on the side of the building as instructed. Then, she gets back in the car, and they make their way back to the promised spot and wait. So now, the exes sit in Miriam's car, their eyes on the traffic. Each time a black SUV with tinted windows approaches, there's a moment of hushed expectation. And each time one of those SUVs fails to pull over, disappointment washes over them like a wave. They wait all day. The kidnappers, they never show. The next day, Miriam receives another phone call. She recognizes the same deep voice who made the initial contact. Karen is still alive, he assures her, but the cartel's kingpin has decided that Miriam needs to pay $2,000 more for her safe release. Miriam pleads with them to reconsider, but her words, they mean nothing to him. In the end, desperate to keep her daughter safe from harm, she promises to pay the extra money, but she has one condition. She'll only hand over the envelope if the meeting is face-to-face. -face. Now, she knows it's a risky strategy to bargain with the cartels, but to her astonishment, the man agrees. He tells her when and where to meet, and then the line goes dead. That night, Miriam finds herself sitting in a dimly lit booth of a fast food restaurant called El Junior. Is her daughter's captor already here? 
watching her? Does he mean to do her harm too? Then suddenly, a man enters. He's short and slim, with sharp, calculating eyes and cropped dark hair. A knowing smirk is etched on his face as he scans the room. When he spots Miriam, he strolls over like he's an old friend and slips into the booth opposite her. Miriam starts to plead. She's followed every order, scraping together the extra funds he demanded. All she wants is to have her beloved daughter back. But the man just ignores her. Instead of replying, he reaches for the envelope that sits on the table between them and starts to methodically count the notes inside. When he's sure she's not shortchanged him, he slips the envelope into his pocket and promises to do all he can to deliver Karen back to her mother. Miriam attempts to engage him in conversation, to try and unearth some personal details that she might be able to take back to the police. But he remains tight-lipped, offering up nothing, not even his name. However, he might not have to. You see, the whole time they're sitting at the table, a walkie-talkie that hangs from his belt crackles incessantly. Once or twice through the blasts of static and indecipherable chatter, she catches a snippet of a name. Sama. Each time the name is said, the man opposite her instinctively reaches for the dial and lowers the volume a little. Could this inadvertent slip-up lead to his true identity? With their business concluded, the man maneuvers out of the booth and leaves without uttering another word. Now all Miriam can do is wait. As the days drag on, the phone calls from the cartel stop. This has to be a bad sign, right? I mean, if the abductors have stopped demanding money, it can only mean one thing. Miriam's fun-loving, beautiful daughter, Karen, is dead. It's a brutal realization that no parent should ever have to face. In the days that follow, Miriam visits police stations across the state of Tamaulipas and tries to convince officers of the law to investigate. However, every single cop she speaks to dismisses her fears. They tell her that they're too busy and that searching for her daughter would be a pointless task. It seems everyone is too scared to face up to the cartels who terrorize the city. Yeah, everyone that is, except Miriam herself. And now, rather than succumbing to the pit of despair that most parents would sink into, Miriam decides to go on the attack. If the police aren't gonna do anything about the death of her daughter, She'll do it herself. So, she considers what she already knows about the kidnappers, which doesn't amount to much. The lines of communication that were being used for the ransom demands are closed, which leaves her with only a solitary piece of information. A name. Sama. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. 
I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. A vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The curious history of your home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. With no better place to start, she decides to harvest the enormous and wide-reaching power of social media. She figures that young people these days can't do anything without posting about it online. So it's as good a place to start as any. And so, Miriam grabs Karen's laptop from her room and begins her task. For hours, she loses herself hunting for Sama. She trawls through the thousands of photographs and visits Karen's friends' Facebook pages in the hopes that a man called Sama might have left a message on their feeds. But he hasn't. It appears that he's a ghost in the digital world. Frustrated, Miriam is about to call it a day. But just as she reaches to close the laptop lid, he appears. He's tagged in a picture with one of Karen's friends. In the picture, Sama is leaning casually against a wall. Beside him is a girl, probably around her daughter's age. She's wearing a purple uniform with an intricate ice cream logo stitched into it. A quick internet search tells Miriam everything she needs to know. The ice cream parlor that the girl works in is in a city called Ciudad Victoria, and it's only a two-hour drive away. For the past two weeks, Miriam has been staking the ice cream parlor out, keeping watch over the place from the moment it opens to long after it closes. However, there's been no sight of Sama. On the 15th day, as the sun begins its daily descent, Miriam watches from her parked car as the girl from the photograph walks outside. She pulls the shutters down over the ice cream parlor's door, as usual, and starts to walk down the street. After another day of inactivity, Miriam prepares to start the engine to begin her two-hour journey home. But then, she stops. A man is walking down the sidewalk towards the ice cream parlor. Miriam immediately recognizes him as the very man she's been hunting, Sama. She ducks down in her car, afraid he might notice her. From her hiding place, she covertly pokes her head above the steering wheel, casting clandestine glances towards her target. Sama and the girl get into a car and drive away. Miriam fumbles for a key and turns it in the ignition. The ignition splutters to life, and she pulls away from the curb, keeping Sama's car in sight. She tails him through the rapidly darkening evening, 
taking care not to get too close. The last thing she wants to do is to alert him to the fact that he's being followed. When she turns into the driveway of a house, she continues on without stopping. She's got what she needs. She knows where her daughter's kidnapper lives. When she gets home that night, she makes a radical decision. Sama knows what she looks like, so if she wants to keep tailing him, she's going to need to change her appearance. In front of the bathroom mirror, she lifts a pair of scissors and hacks off her long brown hair. When it's short enough, she applies hair dye and waits for it to work. An hour later, she's barely recognizable. The next morning, Miriam, with her new short, fiery red hair, walks around Sama's neighborhood in Ciudad Victoria. She's dressed in a health worker's uniform that she found in her wardrobe from a job she had a year ago. She carries a clipboard, and an official-looking ID card hangs around her neck. At each house, she conducts a poll to gather more information. Of course, now, this is a solo mission not affiliated with the government, as she claims. This operation is solely to uncover dirt on Sama, and it is effective. Some of the people living in the area mention suspected cartel activity and provide her with Sama's real name. By the end of the day, as well as his real name, she has his address, the make and model of his car, and even the license plate number. Armed with this new information, she again visits a number of police stations. But even with the intel she's gathered, almost no one wants to help. Eventually, a local cop shows some interest. It takes a couple of days to convince him, but he finally relents. Unfortunately, by the time he knocks on Sama's door, it's clear the young cartel member has skipped town. It's a tough pill to swallow but Miriam tries not to let it show. She knows Sama will resurface soon. She just needs to be ready when he does. It's September 15th, 2014. Almost seven months since Karen Rodriguez was kidnapped. Karen's brother, Louise, is at work. The cowboy apparel shop he owns has been quiet all day, but as luck would have it, just as he's about to close up, a customer wanders in. Louise greets him with a smile and offers to help with any of the man's needs. The man thanks him and says he's good. He just wants to browse. There's something about that man that's familiar. Louise doesn't know why. He casts a few covert glances the man's way. But suddenly, he realizes who it is. He recognizes the customer from the photo strewn across his mom's kitchen table. It's Sama. So what should he do? Try and subdue Sama and hope he can overpower him? Or lock the store and trap the kidnapper inside? Before Luis can take action, Sama replaces the hat he was trying on and nods a friendly farewell. Luis springs into action, 
closes up the store as quickly as he can and runs to his car. He watches Sama enter his own vehicle and merge with the afternoon traffic. Luis follows him at a safe distance. He calls Miriam and tells her what he's doing. She asks for his location and promises to bring backup in the form of the police officer who agreed to help her. A little later, the cop knocks on Sama's door. Miriam watches from the car as the two men exchange tense words before the cop spins Sama around forcefully and slaps a pair of cuffs on his wrists. Sama screams his objections, but the officer isn't interested in what Sama has to say. He leads him to the waiting car, and Sama's yells die in his throat when he realizes who's waiting for him in the front seat. In prison, a couple hours later, Sama sits in an interview room. It seems the kidnapper is some sort of mercenary. Usually cartel members would keep their mouths shut. They wouldn't dare rat on their friends, knowing full well what happens when you're outed as a snitch. Sama, however, is only too happy to throw his co-conspirators under the bus. Before the night is through, the cops have a list of the people who helped kidnap Karen. And it doesn't take long to round another of the suspects up. A couple of days later, Christian Jose Zapata Gonzalez sits in a police interview room. He's hunched over the table. Tears flow freely down his cheeks. His body is shaking as he sobs. Gonzalez is only 18 years old, much too young to be involved with the cartel. Yet, here he is. The interviewing officers throw question after question at him, but he can't answer. He shakes his head, terrified that anything he says might get back to his gangland bosses. He doesn't want to be out of that informer. The retribution against him would be swift and merciless. Instead of answering their questions, he begs with the officers to allow him to eat. He's starving. And when he isn't talking about food, he calls out in a shaky voice for his mom. All he wants is a hug. After a while of getting nowhere, the interview is paused. The officers get up to leave and are met by a fresh round of pleas for food, for mercy, for his mom. The cops ignore him. Miriam does it. In the cafeteria, she buys a plate of fried chicken and a Coke. She carries it up the corridor, knocks on the interview room door, and lets herself in. Gonzalez regards her with tears swimming in his eyes. Without uttering a single word, she slides the plate of food across the table towards him. When she leaves the room, one of the interviewing officers regards her with suspicion, even distrust. What are you thinking? He asks her. He's still a child, Miriam replies. No matter what he did, I am still a mother. Perhaps it's Miriam's kind gesture that convinces Gonzalez to open up. When the interview recommences, he tells the cops that he'll lead them to the ranch where they took kidnapping victims. 
The next day, a convoy of police cars traveled down a narrow, rutted dirt track. Eventually, they reach a clearing and come to a stop. Miriam emerges from one of the cars. This isn't going to be easy. The day is blisteringly hot. The sun is high in the cloudless blue sky, beating down without mercy. The buzz of insects coming from the long grass that skirts the clearing is almost deafening. But Miriam doesn't notice any of this. Her attention is drawn by other things. To her, the whole place is like a scene from a nightmare. There's a mud brick house on the left of the clearing. The narrow windows that line the building have been shattered and the walls are dotted with bullet holes. According to Gonzalez, Mexican Marines stormed the ranch a couple of weeks earlier, killing six cartel members. Old rusted farm machinery litters the ranch's vast grounds. The baked cracked earth is covered in dark bloodstains. From the gnarled branch of a nearby tree, a noose swings in the light breeze that swoops through the property. It's impossible not to imagine the horrors inflicted upon the victims who were brought here. Around the back of the farm building, Miriam finds a pile of belongings strewn haphazardly across the ground. There are leather satchels, parts of vehicles, and items of clothing. And there, on top of the pile, is an item that cracks Miriam's heart in two. It's her daughter's scarf. Any hope left inside Miriam that Karen will be found alive is extinguished there and then. On the other side of the house, there's a sprawling field. The ground looks like it's been recently disturbed. And Miriam overhears the police officers speculating what lies underneath. If their train of thought is correct, the field is the site of a mass grave. Miriam asks to be taken home. She can't bear the thought of watching her daughter's remains being lifted from the ground. As she's being driven away from that awful place, Miriam's heartbreak begins to be eclipsed by another emotion, fury. She vows not to rest until every single person involved in her daughter's kidnap is behind bars. The months become years as Miriam chases down lead after lead. Now, she's not your typical vigilante. Oh, sure, she has a pistol, but she's never had combat training or even come close to using it. Instead, she uses the power of the internet and social media as a way of locating her prey. She tracks down some of the cartel members with relative ease. Others take more time and effort. When she's found them, she hands them over to the cops. She finds that some of the kidnappers have fled from the cartel and have tried to become law-abiding citizens, taking jobs as taxi drivers and librarians, you know, that kind of thing. One of these men is called Enrique Flores. He's left his life of crime behind, seeking refuge in the church. Well... God may have forgiven Flores for his sins, but Miriam sure as hell hasn't. 
The town of Aldama is a three-hour drive from Miriam's home. For the past few weeks, she's driven here and attended a service in one of the town's many churches. This Sunday's no different. Miriam sits near the back with many watchful eyes on her. They may not recognize her as the avenging angel that she is, but she's new. And around here, strangers are met with a natural wariness. She looks around the holy building at its sacred iconography and old stone walls, but it's none of these things that she's interested in. No, uh-uh. She's hunting for Flores. And then, at the front near the altar, she spots him. He's dressed fashionably and in deep conversation with the man sitting beside him. As the sermon begins, Miriam seizes her opportunity. As quietly as she can, she slips from her seat and makes her way to the exit. Outside, she approaches the waiting police officers and tells them that Flores is inside. In a burst of motion, the two officers throw open the church doors. The priest, standing at the front of the room, stumbles over his words. Intrigued by what's happening, the congregation turns to see what the cause of the commotion is. There are gasps of astonishment at the sight of the two police officers marching down the central aisle with their guns raised. They're even more surprised to see the red-headed stranger watching the unfolding events with a smile on her face. Flores is apprehended easily and led down the aisle in handcuffs. Now confusion spreads to the assembled crowd. Flores is a son of the town. What could he possibly have done to deserve this sort of treatment? And in the house of the Lord of all places? Surely there must be some sort of mistake. Their confusion turns to anger. Some of the congregations stand and call for the police to cease their operation. A couple of elderly women near Miriam call for mercy, but she silences them with her stinging retort. Where was his compassion when they killed my daughter? She spits before storming out of the church. With Flores in custody, her mind turns to the final cartel member she needs to catch. It's now January 2017, almost three agonizing years since Karen Rodriguez was taken away from Miriam. Miriam stands on the bridge that links the corner of Mexico and the seemingly endless expanse of Texas, searching for the last man on her list, a man known only as the florist. He spends his days on this bridge selling bouquets of flowers from a rickety little cart. And that's exactly what he's doing the morning Miriam sets eyes on him. The day's only just begun, but already the bridge is teeming with commuters headed to work. Street vendors line both sides of the bridge, calling out loudly and thrusting their products into the faces of the passing workers. In the midst of the bustling scene, Miriam leans against the railing, composing herself. She slips a photograph from her pocket 
and confirms that the man standing in front of the cart with the brightly colored flowers is definitely her target. She tucks the photograph away and sets off along the bridge, using the crowd as cover. However, as she approaches, the florist's eyes lock with hers. Time seems to stand still, and then a flicker of recognition registers on his face. You see, thanks to her efforts at rounding up these criminals, Miriam Rodriguez has become well-known, regularly appearing in the papers. Without a moment's hesitation, the florist abandons his cart and bolts, pushing through the commuters in an effort to get away from Miriam. 56-year-old Miriam takes off after him, pulling a pistol from her bag. She may be approaching 60, but Miriam is agile. She dodges between the crowd and gains on the florist. He casts a glance back, fear etched on his features. Adrenaline pushes Miriam forward until she's mere inches away. With one final push, she lunges forward, arms outstretched. She grabs a handful of the florist's shirt and pulls him to the ground. He struggles, but she's more than up to the task of keeping him subdued. She jabs her pistol into the small of his back and whispers into his ear, If you move, I'll shoot you. Miriam's reputation precedes her. The florist knows enough about her to understand that this is not an empty threat. Miriam calls the cops, and when they arrive, the florist is led away. Thanks to her monumental efforts, every single person involved in Karen's kidnap is behind bars. Miriam can now rest safe in the knowledge that she's won justice for her daughter. Or can she? It's March 26, 2017. A guard walks purposely down a corridor in the notorious Sedez Victoria prison. He's on his way to check in on the prisoners before lights out. Usually, the incarcerated men are lined up at their doors, hurling insults and banging their fists against the steel. Tonight, however, there's an eerie atmosphere. It's quiet, like a ghost town. The guard approaches one of the doors and peers inside. To his surprise, he finds that the room is empty. Quick as a flash, he unhooks a set of keys from his belt and opens the door. He may be panicking, but he still enters cautiously. He's seen colleagues be fooled into rash action, only to be surprised by a blade-wielding prisoner leaping from a cleverly disguised hiding place. Tonight, though, there's no hidden prisoner. Instead, a startling discovery awaits him. Below, on one of the beds, he unearths a crudely dug hole. It's wide enough for a man to squeeze through and leads to a dark tunnel. Its purpose is unmistakable, an escape route. The guard quickly raises the alarm. The lockdown protocols are put into place, but it's like closing the door once the horse is bolted. They're too late. Already, 29 inmates have escaped 
beyond the walls of the penitentiary. Many of the escapees belonged to the Los Zetas cartel. Worse still, they were put there thanks to the tireless efforts of Miriam Rodriguez. Could this daring jailbreak spell trouble for Miriam? Had the prisoners escaped with the idea of doling out revenge? It's May 10th, 2017, Mother's Day in Mexico. This year's been especially tough on Miriam. Her remaining children, Louise and Azalea, have tried hard to make it special, but the Karen-shaped hole has been difficult to ignore. It's just past 10 at night. Headlights cut through the encroaching darkness as Miriam turns onto her street and pulls into the curb. She gets out and starts towards her house. Usually so alert to every detail, Miriam fails to notice a vehicle that isn't normally on her street. No one around here drives a white Nissan van. Of course, the driver has chosen the spot carefully. The van is parked opposite Miriam's home, shrouded in darkness, as far away from the streetlight as possible. As she strolls towards the path that leads to her house, the panel door of the van slides open, revealing the metallic barrel of a machine gun. Alerted by the noise of the door, Miriam turns to look, but doesn't have any time to react. The quiet of the night is interrupted by the staccato bursts of gunfire. Thirteen rounds are fired in a matter of seconds, and then the van speeds off, disappearing into the night, leaving only the acrid stench of burnt rubber in its wake. Miriam falls to the ground. She cries out in agony. She's been hit 12 times and is bleeding out. Neighbors run onto the street, drawn out by the sudden blast of violence. Some rush to her side, trying in vain to stem the bleeding. Within minutes, the wail of an ambulance's siren pierces the night, but it's too late to save her. On the way to the hospital, Miriam Rodriguez, the fearless warrior and doting mother, is pronounced dead. Since the cartels rose to power in the 1970s, hundreds of thousands of lives have been claimed, including Miriam's. The fight against these groups seems insurmountable, unwinnable. Before Miriam, ordinary, hardworking people were afraid to challenge the cartels. Her defiance showed, for a short while at least, that these thugs could be held accountable for their atrocities. She became a beacon of hope for those trapped in the same position as her. Before she died, Miriam formed the Colectivo Desaparecidos, a group devoted to finding people kidnapped by the cartels. The association's numbers swelled during Miriam's time in charge, and its members would go on to take courses in forensic anthropology, archaeology, and law. The collective still exists, though, after her death, 
the group sadly lost some of its momentum. Miriam once said to her husband, I don't care if they kill me. I died the day they killed my daughter. I want to end this. I'm going to take out the people who hurt my daughter, and they can do whatever they want to me. In the end, they did. They gunned her down in cold blood. But Miriam should not be remembered by her tragic ending. She should be known as the grieving mother who went toe-to-toe with a cartel and won. Won.